On Palm Sunday, I usually focus on why it was that the Lord Jesus set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. And so with that in mind, I've decided to go on with the series on Ephesians because it answers that question for us. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. We'll begin reading at verse 3 and we'll read through verse 8. Let's bow before the Lord before reading. Our Father, we pray that you will take the coals from the altar and anoint the lips of the one who speaks, that he may speak your truth and expound faithfully the text of Scripture before us. And we pray that your people will be granted persevering grace and that through the word proclaimed, because you have promised it please God through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe that you will be saving your people through the gospel message, and that those among us today who may not know the Lord at all will see their need, their desperate need of the Savior, and that they will come to him who is the only redeemer of God's elect. We ask, therefore, that the Holy Spirit will be at work to illumine the page of Holy Scripture that has been given to us by divine inspiration, and we pray that our hearts may be informed and deeply moved and our affection shaped into Christ's likeness by the word proclaimed. For we ask it in the name of our Savior who died upon the cross and rose from the dead. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 3. Our focus being on verses 7 and 8. This is the word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight." I don't know if you've ever flown across a great mountain range and looking down you have seen with amazement what God has created and you have thought there's one vista after another, one great mountain peak and then another and another and you see the unity of the complex range. Well that's how I think and feel about this first chapter of the book of Ephesians. It's one vast mountain range with peak after peak and as we see the unity and complexity of it all we're amazed at what God has done for us as he has redeemed us from our awful sins. We have been led through union with Christ, God's sovereignty and salvation, adoption into God's family, and now we come to redemption through His blood. Redemption through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 7 and 8. And I must tell you that the saddest thing to me is that much of professing Christianity today in our country has become ashamed of the blood of Jesus Christ. Ashamed of the blood of Christ? I almost blush to say it, but it's true. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones illustrated this in his life many, many years ago, and it's only gotten worse. 
he turned to a magazine that interested him, a gospel magazine that was published in Britain, and he was so interested to see that the lead article was a gospel article. What is the gospel was the article. So he was eager to read it. But as he read it, he found that the blood of Jesus Christ was not one time mentioned. The death of Christ was not mentioned. The cross was completely bypassed. The gospel of Christ was absent from the article on the gospel of Christ. My friends, there's only one way to be redeemed, and that is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And so let me begin right away by saying if there is anyone that is relying upon something else, someone else, or some work of your own, it simply won't wash You can only be cleansed from your sins by the blood of Jesus Christ who has redeemed us from our sins. There is only one way to God, only one way to the Father, only one way to heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ who shed his blood for sinners. That is why he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem so that he might die for sinners such as you and me so that we might be cleansed from our awful sins. And so the first thing we want to do as we come to the text this morning is ask the essential question, what is redemption? If we are redeemed through the shed blood of Jesus, then what is redemption? Now one word that is used in the New Testament for redemption is agorazo or ex-agorazo. Can you hear the word agora in that word? The agora, of course, was the marketplace, the place in which you would buy and sell, and especially slaves were bought and sold in the agora. And so the word is used, especially as it relates to the purchase and manumission of slaves in the New Testament era. The word lutruo or apolytrosis, which is used here in verse 7, are also terms that are used. And in the ancient world, it was the word that was usual for, again, the purchase or the manumission of a slave. The slave would be purchased off of the block, and then he would be set free if someone had a mind to do it. That's the word that's used here. And it does not simply mean to deliver. There are those who have said it simply means to deliver and so we can minimize the death of Christ, the cross, and blood. No, no. The word does not simply mean to deliver. It does mean deliverance by the payment of a price. So that when our Lord Jesus Christ said in Mark's gospel that he came in order to give his life a ransom for many, the Lord Jesus was teaching that there was a ransom required, his shed blood, his death on the cross. The slave market is the backdrop in which the slave was bought and set free, but for us the need was deeper, it was moral. We needed the payment of Jesus' blood to set us free from our awful sins. And so the word implies immediately Jesus' sacrifice, immediately the truth of substitutionary atonement that we cannot save ourselves and we need a redeemer who would die for us. And all of this, as I have said, implies bondage. Well, what was that bondage? The bondage was essentially twofold. First of all, it is the bondage of guilt, what the Bible calls the curse of the law. We are under the curse of the law. Now, the law is a reflection of God's perfect character. The law is holy and just and good, but you and I are not. We are sinners and we have broken the law of God. 
And that's why Paul says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Earlier he had said, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. And so the law of God comes and it says, my demands are inflexible and absolutely holy. If you're going to be saved, keep those demands. We're fallen in Adam, we are sinners, and we cannot keep those demands. And so the law comes against us to condemn us. But Christ took upon himself that condemnation. And when he took upon himself that condemnation, it would so so that you and I who were under that guilt could be freed from that guilt. That's redemption. But not only are we freed from guilt through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are also freed from the dominion of sin over our lives. We were under the domination of Satan and under the domination of sin. But we are told in Matthew, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. Many of you know the Old Testament book Hosea. The prophet had an unfaithful wife, and he went and bought her back from the slave market. Well, Christ had a people who were unfaithful, who were sinners, and he bought us from the slave market of sin by his own shed blood, setting us free from our bondage to the curse of the law and the dominion of sin. Isn't that a marvel? Do you get tired of hearing this? Oh, no, no, certainly not. No Christian should get tired of hearing that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law and the dominion of sin. But let me tell you what I think is the grandest thing about this redemption. The grandest thing about this redemption is that God himself pays the price. There was only one that was good enough to pay the price of sin, and that was Jesus Christ. God himself, the second person of the Trinity, assumed human nature and obeyed the law that you broke and went to the cross and paid the penalty that you and I owed and that we would have paid for eternity to come had he not been our substitute upon the cross. The marvel of this is that God was the offended party and yet God, God the Son, is the one who came into this world and shed his blood that you and I might be redeemed from the curse of the law. And I say that's a marvel. That is a wonder. There is nothing greater and grander than that. Well, how is redemption accomplished? If that's what redemption is, how is it accomplished? And the first thing we want to see is that it comes to us in the context of grace. It all happens because of grace. You see, he says in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, and him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And there's a constant emphasis upon grace, 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 as we have seen already in this first chapter. William Hendrickson illustrates it, I think, very well. Here are two very rich persons. And both are asked to contribute toward a good cause and to give of their riches. The first one, however, donates of his riches a very paltry sum. He gives of his riches, not according to his riches. The other is lavish in his gift. He gives according to his riches. Well, that's what God has done for us. He has not simply given of his riches. He has given according to his riches. He's given his own son to die on the cross for us. I would say that's according to his riches, wouldn't you? That's what he has done for us. And now let me add this. 
God is infinite. So if he gives according to his riches, it is infinite in value. And that means that his sacrifice for sin is infinitely valuable and therefore sufficient for any sinner who believes in him. Is that sinner you who believes in him? Do you know that his blood is sufficient to wipe away sin no matter how deep, no matter how dire, no matter how foul that sin may be because it is the blood of the God-man that was shed upon the cross? And that's the answer to the question, how is redemption accomplished? It is through the shed blood of Jesus. Look at verse 7 again. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Redemption comes through the shed blood of Jesus. Have you considered the power of Jesus' blood to forgive sin? What is the power of Jesus' blood? Well, it is the power of God's loving provision. For we read in 1 Peter Uh, chapter 1 and verse 20 of that provision, that he was foreknown, that means predestined, planned, purposed before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Christ was purposed and planned to be the redeemer of his people from eternity. The power of the blood is the power of God's loving provision. It is also the power of purity, for in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 9, knowing that you are ransomed not from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It was absolute in its purity. The power of the blood of Jesus is in its infinite worth and value. The Apostle Paul says in Acts chapter 20 as he is saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders that they are to pay careful attention to themselves and to the flock to take care of the church of God which he purchased with his own blood and the antecedent to his own blood is God It is the blood of God who assumed human nature, therefore of infinite worth and value. The power of the blood of Jesus is in its ability to turn away wrath. So in Romans 3.25, Jesus is called the propitiation through faith in his blood. That is the one who satisfies the divine wrath and the divine anger. The mercy seat, you might remember in the Old Testament of which we read this morning, was a solid gold piece that was placed on the ark. In the Hebrew, of course, it means covering. The mercy seat stood over the ark of the testimony in which were held the law, the tablets of the law of God. But when sprinkled with blood, God then can look upon the law and not execute wrath on sinners. That's what Jesus has done. Because of his shed blood, those who trust in him will never know the wrath of God. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The power of the blood is such that if you put anything else with it, you are lost. But when you trust it alone, you are saved. You know, I read somewhere that that Judson, the missionary, Adoniram Judson, the missionary to Burma, returned to the United States after a 30-year absence. And as he was gathered in one community to speak, he just, he just preached the gospel to them. Someone said, you know, the people are very disappointed. They came to hear about your adventures. 
They wanted to hear a great story. He said, well, I've told them the greatest story that can be told, how God came down and assumed human nature and went to a cross and shed His blood and died for sinners and rose from the dead. Do you think I have a story that can top that story? Adniram Judson said, when I stand before the Lord on the judgment day, how could I answer when He said to me, I gave you one opportunity to tell them of me and you described your own adventures There is no story, no adventure that is greater than this. Redemption was a divine transaction. He wore my crown of thorns, I his crown of glory. He took my nakedness, I wear his righteousness. You know these old hymn lines, who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason Jesus hath undone thee. T'was I, Lord Jesus, I it was denied thee, I crucified thee. Do you know these lines? Lo, the good shepherd for the sheep is offered. The slave hath sinned and the son hath suffered. He died in the place of sinners like us. So what we have here, redemption through his blood, simply means penal substitutionary atonement. Think of it this way. Someone signs a bond for another person. And when he does that, he becomes the surety for that person. That means the one who promises to bear the legal obligations of another So the person for whom he became surety absconds with the funds, leaving the surety holding the bag, and then the creditors come and they demand payment. Well, he can't say, I didn't think my business partner would betray the debt. No, the creditors have come and they demand the payment by the surety because he agreed to obtain what is owed to them because he took the debt upon himself. Well, the legal obligation belongs to the surety even though the wrong is not his, and that's what Jesus has done. He has taken the legal obligation of our debt upon himself, even though morally it never belonged to him. This is the great transaction of the cross. This is what happened on Calvary. Jesus is there, the surety of his people, bearing your debt, paying your price. He is the one who took upon himself all of the legal obligations and curse of the law, even though morally he was absolutely pure and absolutely undeserving of such death. This is a marvel. Redemption comes only through the blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Well, what are the results of redemption? Well, we see it here. Forgiveness of our trespasses. Look again at verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, our offenses as we have broken the law of God. All of our sins have been removed. And the verb here, ekomen, is a simple present indicative. We have it now. We have it full. We have it freely. We have it sufficiently. We have it ongoingly. We have the redemption now. Well, for my past sins, someone says, for my past sins, you don't know how terrible my sins have been. You don't know how awful my past has been. Well, I know that any sin deserves God's infinite displeasure. I know that the power of Jesus' blood is infinite. Do you doubt the power of Jesus' blood? Are you going to say that your sins are so great that the infinitely valuable blood of Jesus cannot pardon you from your sins? I know that the power of Jesus' blood to redeem is typified in the Old Testament by the imputation of sin upon the sacrifice and the release of the scapegoat into the wilderness because the point is this, sin can't be here and there too. Sin cannot be laid on Christ's account and to my account also. I know that the scriptures teach that the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. 
so that we read in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. In Isaiah 44, I have blotted out as a thick cloud your transgressions, as a cloud your sins. In Micah 7:19, thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. And in Jeremiah 31, and their sins I will remember no more. Did you hear that? Because of the blood of Jesus, I will remember their sins no more. You know, the term for forgiveness, apfiemi, essentially means to dismiss. It means to send away. And that's what has happened in the blood of Jesus. When you trust the Lord Jesus Christ, you are trusting the one who has sent your sins away, just as the scapegoat was sent off into the wilderness. Well, you say, that's wonderful, but what about my present sins? I sin now. Well, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? The scriptures say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's right now. Yes, you say, but, but uh, what about I'll sin tomorrow? I'm still morally a sinner, and I want to follow the Lord, but I, I fail. Well, keep your finger here and turn to the book of Hebrews and look for yourselves at Hebrews chapter 9 and notice what it says about this truth in Hebrews nine twelve through 15. Giving you just a moment to get there. Hebrews uh, 9, 12 through 15. Look for the word eternal, all right? Hebrews 12, beginning, 9, beginning with verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You say, you'll sin tomorrow. I say to you, he has purchased for you through the eternal Spirit an eternal redemption. I answer you that the blood of Jesus Christ has eternal value. I answer you that it is infinite in its sufficiency. But my case is extreme. Well, Jesus' death on the cross was extreme. It pleased the Lord to crush him, putting him to grief. Do you see? The merit of the blood of Jesus Christ is inexhaustible. Inexhaustible. Hear these great words of Toplady. From whence this fear and unbelief hath not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which Lord was charged on thee? Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost farthing paid whate'er thy people owed. How then can wrath on me take place if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood? If thou hast my discharge procured and fully, freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. Turn then my soul unto thy rest, the merits of thy great high priest have bought thy liberty, trust in his efficacious blood, nor fear thy banishment from God, since Jesus died for thee." Remember, redemption is according to God's grace. Can God's grace be exhausted? 
Redemption is in proportion to the limitlessness of God's grace, so that it's not your fate that saves, but the blood that the hand of faith grips that saves. You receive it by faith, but it is the grace that saves, and that faith itself is God's grace. That leads us to see the lavish grace of redemption. Notice how he speaks of riches. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of God's grace. And we don't want to bypass that, the riches of his grace. Can you see the riches of his grace? I can. Riches, when we consider that the cross solves the problem of the compatibility of justice and mercy. Riches, when we consider that God shows mercy to the guilty. Riches when we consider that God reaps a harvest of praise from unpromising barren soil like ours. Riches when we consider that redemption secures the remission of our sins. Riches when we consider that the cross secures personal holiness. Riches when we consider that other graces flow from redemption, faith, repentance, and a godly walk. Riches when we consider that redemption cannot be reversed. Tell me that the Father planned salvation, that the Son purchased salvation, that the Spirit of God applies salvation, and I can lose it. That dishonors the character of God, the value of Jesus' blood, and the work of the blessed Spirit. My pardon has been signed in Jesus' blood and therefore is irreversible. Riches when we consider that the chief end of all of God's works is the manifestation of his own glory. And where is God's glory more magnificently seen than in the cross of Jesus and his shed blood? No wonder then the apostle speaks of lavish grace, the riches of his grace. And so are you a poor spiritual pauper? Go to him for his riches. Sinners, consider this, sinners throughout the world and throughout the ages, completely pardoned, and it does not diminish the riches of God's grace. So many people pulling upon his riches, coming to him for forgiveness, so many sins to be forgiven, and yet it does not diminish the grace of God. The grace, now hear me, The grace is just as infinite after all of this as it was before. Infinite grace, no matter how it is expended, infinite grace remains infinite. Infinite cannot be less than infinite. So you draw upon his grace, but it does not diminish his grace. Opulent grace, the opulent blood of the beloved of the Father, God can lavish his grace upon us, for it never runs dry, it never will run short, and it cannot be exhausted, the riches of his grace. So I have $1,000, and I give you $100, I've given, I've given out of my riches, But I have $1,000 and I give you $1,000. I give you according to my riches, but it leaves me broke. But when God gives his riches, his riches are infinite. He gives it all and there is as much as that with which he started. Good news, brothers and sisters. There is as much grace with which he started when he continues to give you grace. How are we made partakers of redemption in Christ? Let me briefly answer this. From two perspectives. First, we are forgiven vicariously. Our sins were put away in Christ's obedience and shed blood on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. 
but personally we are not forgiven until we trust Christ who died for us. Personally, by faith in Christ, we are made partakers of the redemption that has been purchased for his people. So how are we partakers of the effects of redemption personally? By simple faith. Not by any work of righteousness that you perform, but by simple faith. Acts 10.43, whoever believes in him shall have the remission of sins. Faith does not merit redemption. Faith receives Christ the Redeemer. Faith is the alone instrument for receiving Jesus Christ. And by repentance from sin, which is not different from faith, that's the obverse side of the coin. Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance is simply turning from God to sin and moving in the direction of newness of life. It's not a work, it's a grace. Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Manton the Puritan said, Christ did not reconcile God to our sins or to pardon our sins while we remain in them, but to bring us back again to the service and enjoyment of God. And so when we believe on Jesus Christ, we also are turning from sin and unto him. So my friend, if you have not trusted in Christ, listen, you cannot liquidate your debts because your debts are too great. You cannot liquidate your debts because the debt is infinite and you cannot pay that debt. Only Christ could accomplish such a thing. So will you believe in Christ right this moment? Will you turn from sin to Christ now? Have you acknowledged yourself to be a sinner? Have you said before him, I justly deserve your judgment, God. I'm without hope apart from Jesus Christ. What's keeping you from the Lord Jesus Christ? May he grant the gifts of faith and repentance to many, even at this moment, so that you trust in him. Well, that's redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Let's bring it to conclusion by my adding these three thoughts. First of all, may I address once again some unbelieving folk that may be here today with this simple reality No Christ, no pardon. No Christ, no pardon. The Bible is abundantly clear on this. Are you? If you try to meet God anywhere but the cross, he is not your friend. Meet him by faith at the cross, and he is your friend. So the text says, in him we have redemption. You must be in union with Christ by faith. That theme of union with Christ that is found in this chapter, union with Christ by faith. You must come to God through the shed blood of Jesus. You must personally trust in Him in order to be saved from your sins. And so I plead with you, come to Him, trust in Him, and may the Spirit of God enable you even now. Second thing I want to say is to our congregation, the people of God, don't lose this truth. Don't lose this truth. One way is by intellectual pride. Men who think they have a better idea than God's and so they come up with their own gospel. It happens all the time. Another is neglect. 
If redemption through Christ's blood is seldom preached, it will be lost in the church. Other things will take up the space due to it. Charles Spurgeon told of a minister who sat in his vestry, utterly broken, driven almost to despair, having no rest for his soul. He had followed modern theories and was preaching the current unbelief. He came back to simple faith in the atoning blood of Jesus in Spurgeon's study. And Spurgeon said, if that minister were here, he would say, cling to your faith, brethren. If you once throw away your shield, you will lay yourself open to imminent dangers and countless wounds, for nothing can protect you but the shield of faith. And young people, let me say to you, the evil of bad theology, false theology, I've seen it, I've seen it close. Men say it's old-fashioned, men say it's irrelevant, but be willing to bear the scorn of the world for the sake of the blood of Christ and the empty tomb and the risen Lord. Young people be willing to bear the reproach of Christ. Let me put it this way to all of us. Keep your spiritual temperature high. In your body, when the temperature goes up, something's wrong. In our spiritual living before the Lord... If our spiritual temperature is not high, something's wrong. Keep your spiritual temperature high. Be hot for these truths. Love these truths. Embrace these truths. Live out of these truths. Let these truths form your life. Because we are so careless in our living. But we want to be able to say, my sins, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sins not in part but the whole were nailed to the cross and I bear that sin no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. And we want future generations of this church to confess the same, though all the world or even all the church deny it. Don't lose this truth. And then let me say this finally. Let's go from this place with an increase of love to the one who shed his blood to redeem us as our penal substitute on the cross. And let's praise him. Ephesians 1 is one lengthy praise unto God. And why not? What wondrous grace. What soul incomparable redemption. Lavish free grace. It's just too much. (laughs) It's just, imagine it. One of the old preachers rightly said that God's people are safe in, in their salvation by the simple fact that Calvary is set perpetually before the eyes of God and a risen and ascended Savior. Think of that. When your risen, ascended Savior is there in the Holy of Holies, having presented his own shed blood, every time God looks upon you, he looks on you through the shed blood of Jesus. Every time he looks on you, believer, he looks on the gospel And I read just this week, some preacher quoted, I've never heard it before, I don't know where he got it, and I don't know if he knows where it came from, but the words are wonderful. Near, so very near to God, near I could not be, for in the person of his Son I am just as near as he. Dear, so very dear to God, dear I could not be, for in the person of his Son I am just as dear, I am just as dear as he. Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, in union with him by faith, when God looks upon you, he loves you as he loves his own son. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. God's people said, Amen.